So the, with the premise of the question, we have to know what is predictable in orthodontics, right? So if we can put aligners to the side for a couple of minutes, it's the fact, what can we do predictably with fixed appliances, with other types of appliances? And the truth is, there's nothing which is 100% predictable. So we've got to start off with the golden truth that it's not 100% predictable as a science. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Like with all things in dentistry, case selection is so, so important. And we all know that orthodontics, including aligners, has a very steep learning curve. That's why in this episode, I brought Dr. Farooq Ahmed to talk all about the do's and don'ts of aligner treatment. I mean, I wish I had something like this when I was starting aligner treatment because it helps you to get more efficient treatment. I mean, I made a few mistakes, nothing serious, but it gives you that magic word, which is predictability. That's what we want in all our treatments and in particular with aligners. Hello Petrusarati, I'm Jazz Galati and welcome to this final episode of Straight Pril. I hope you found this month interesting and stimulating and it's going to help you with your future orthodontic cases. I want to also take this opportunity to apologize to you for not emailing you guys. Like usually I did my newsletter full of the episodes. Uh, I started off by doing a per episode. Now I do like a, a roundup of some of the bigger episodes. So maybe I'll do one for Straight Pril. So all the orthodontic series in one email. But emailing has been very difficult for me because I've moved house. Uh, it's officially happened. It's been a roller coaster. I'm sure any of you who've moved before will be able to relate with me. It's been it's been funny, you know. I moved back from Singapore, uh, back to the UK in 2017. I lived with my parents. Uh, it was nice living in a very traditional Indian household. Uh, during the pandemic, it was brilliant to have six of us, including my son, living in the same household. I think as a bubble during the pandemic, that was really special. I think I'll cherish those memories for the rest of my life, but I think it's time to now flee the nest. So we have our own space now and it, it comes with its own challenges of childcare before I just, you know, give a shine to my parents and have a, some more free time to do this kind of stuff. But I don't have as much time anymore, but that's fine. You know, it's the beauty of being a father, beauty of having a family uh, and everything just has to fit around that, right? So before we join the main episode, where we're gonna look at the main things that make a line of treatment predictable, what which kind of movements are favorable, which ones are unpredictable, and how to program your ClinChecks to overcome that. Now, before we get to that with Farooq Ahmed, I'm gonna share the Protrusive Dental Pearl, which is a retention one, following on for that awesome episode with Dr. Angela Orlak, episode 069. Do check it out if you haven't listened to that already. It's regarding fixed retainers. Now, Angela talked about placing an indirect lab-made fixed retainer but sometimes I like to place a direct one. And what I didn't like and what I didn't enjoy the outcomes was using the sort of braided wire that you have to sort of bend yourself and apply to teeth. I could never get that perfect adaptation. So maybe it's my hand skills or whatever, but I felt as though there should be something better out there for GDPs or, or orthodontists who want to do direct fixed retention and do it really well and more predictably. So what I found, I learned through Mohamed Almuzian is using the ortho flex tech chain retainer. Now this is a chain retainer. So it just has this wonderful contour to the lingual surface of the teeth. Uh, and what I do is I get my nurse to, well, I put the floss between the lateral and the canine, let's talk lower, and we make a little loop. Through the loop goes the retainer on each side, so left and right. And so the nurse pulls it, not too tight, just gently, so that the wire retainer adapts nicely. So if you're watching this on YouTube or Dental Tubules or wherever, you can actually see the video of me um, actually doing this. But if you're listening, just imagine the looped floss, the retainer going through it, the nurse just gently pulls it. So now you have this lovely chain retainer adapted very nicely on the lingual. That retainer has just made things really easier for me when it comes to doing direct fixed retention uh, and placement is better, nicer. I overall really enjoy it. So do check out the FlexTech, OrthoFlexTech chain retainer. I'll put some links on the protrusive.co.uk website so you can check it out. Also on the Protrusive Dental Community Facebook group. If you're not on there, why aren't you on there? Anyway, hope you enjoy this episode, Farouk. I'll catch you in the outro. Farouk Ahmed, welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast my friend. Final episode of Straight Pearl. Uh, horrible name, I know. I keep reminding everyone what a crap name it is, but I needed something. Welcome, my friend. How are you? I'm really good, and I'm glad to be here. Guys, this is going to be a takeover podcast because I have my own podcast, and Jazz has finally got around to inviting me to be here. So I'm going to try and make this entertaining. 
I'm going to give you the content. I'm also going to try and make it awkward for Jazz because I know what he has to do to make this podcast work. And I know the exact thing to say that will make it awkward for him. So, guys, we're going to have a great episode. Oh, my goodness. I'm scared. I'm actually really scared here. But let's see. Let's see where this takes us. Uh, well, usually, if I'm allowed to, Farouk, usually the way I do it is I would give my sort of crappy introduction of the guest. So, to me, you, we, you know, we spoke uh, over lockdown. You were thinking of uh, starting a podcast. And it's just been wonderful to see your Authentics and Summary podcast grow and grow and grow. I think you've got some great people around the world, um, Orthodontist featured, you do uh, shorter episodes, you do longer episodes, so do tell us about that for, for anyone who wants to get their geek on in ortho, uh, and of course you're a consultant orthodontist, and you do some lecturing mostly in, around aligner therapy. Uh, take it away, Farouk. So that's my thing. So I mean, I qualified as a recent consultant in 2018, and I have been really engaged, I'm really lucky to be an orthodontist, guys, I'm really, the, the, the academic side, the clinical side like it's all come together for me and I really enjoy what I do um, and it's led me on a journey for education not just for the specialist training like we can park that to one side especially aligners it's all been a post qualification journey um, and for me I started on the clinical side and then I've started looking at the academic side and starting to do a little bit of research because I'm trying to answer the questions um, part of my role as a teacher at Guy's Hospital so I lead on teaching aligners to postgraduates people want to be orthodontists and Kind of for me, the journey has come about through me doing treating patients in practice, yes, but also uh, teaching people who want to learn. And you know yourself, Jazz, as with your resin bonded uh, bridge course, with the splint course, which is just amazing, by the way. Guys, you've got to check this out. I mean, this, this, these courses are just immense, well-organized, planned, nothing like my podcasts. Um, and the, the idea when you're teaching is that you are, as we spoke about, on the parapet, right? So that you'll get questions thrown at you that you do know and you don't know and unhinge what your theories are. So it leads you to have to reflect and really be honest with yourself and say, well, what is the truth? Uh, and that's led me to where I am now, where I have a, a regular slot on dentinal tubules, where we talk about aligners with a really expert panel of dentists and orthodontists, um, and has led me to kind of now start asking more researchy type questions with my role at a guy's hospital. The podcast itself, though, that came about through lockdown, and I was really bored. Um, and when I'm bored, bad things happen, right? So <laughs> I had to do something to prevent some evil coming into the world. So this podcast filled that <laughs> void of time for me. And guys, what happened is I started... I started started really following jazz then so it's like I, no one's done this in orthodontics i want someone i want to follow someone so then i remember jazz so, so guys if you don't know jazz's fame yes he's got his podcast and the courses but jazz's fame started look at him jazz's fame started with oral d so this is like a boy band of, <laughs> of parody videos for dental students right so guys google it it's his biggest hits by the way on youtube i know this uh, and i've told and i told jazz this before we interview i know more about him than he knows about me so he's so you can see him a bit awkward now. i can't believe oral d got mentioned that's crazy <laughs> oral d and it was epic the guy i mean jazz is a great video of him in a lederhosen doing the harlem shake and like it was great like this guy just made it so i knew jazz so i started following him and thought he's got a great podcast he's got a great website so i wanted to replicate really the structure but also I mean, jazz is super positive and it's all about learning and accepting ideas and thoughts and they may conflict, but actually it's all good because we're professionals and we're friends at the end of the day in dentistry. It's a brotherhood, it's a, it's, it's a sisterhood, it's, it, it's just a community, right? Um, and that's what I liked. And I, I tried to replicate that to a degree in orthodontics where we don't have this. Um, and that's kind of where things are today. But this is, to be honest, this is really jazz at the end of straight pull, scraping the barrel. He can't find another orthodontist, so he had to, so he had to reach out to me and I will take it with both hands. <laughs> Uh, because it's a pleasure not at to all, be not here, at really. all that way we know we say we save the best for last Farouk and this is going to be such a hot topic like people want to know more and more about aligners especially the Petrusrati because the Petrusrati um, is mostly listened to by GDPs and GDPs a lot of us are doing orthodontics and I know at the end I'm going to slip it in there just your take on GDPs and orthodontics where's the limit uh, how do you feel as an yeah, orthodontist yeah. Uh, you know where where do you draw the line kind of thing so we're going to touch on that uh, but I think the, the main theme we're going to tackle today is aligners, how to be more predictable and how to identify and dodge risks. Uh, so it's, it's great to be able to have your expertise on this. So uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to shoot the first question. Which movements are predictable with aligners and which ones are not? Okay, it's a big question. And so the, with the premise of the question, we have to know what is predictable in orthodontics, right? So if we can put aligners to the side for a couple of minutes, 
It's the fact, what can we do predictably with fixed appliances, with other types of appliances? And the truth is, there's nothing which is 100% predictable. So we've got to start off with the golden truth that it's not 100% predictable as a science and as a clinical speciality. And we have to acknowledge that when it comes to aligners. So when we come to looking at the types of movements possible, we know the most predictable one with aligners are tipping, or what we tend to use in the form of alignment, which is great because most of the cases we're doing tend to be alignment cases. If I was to give you the numbers from the literature, we're looking at around about 75%. So that's where we are. So it's good, it's not perfect, but it's there. And then we kind of start to scale things down as to other types of movements. So next I tend to look at, well, what's uh, what else do I want to clinically tend to do? So expansion tends to feature quite highly. And expansion is an interesting one. We tend to have some literature that says about 80% is good, others that tend to say around about 40 to 50%. And I'll come on to that kind of that topic a little bit later. If we For, just these percentages, just to make it tangible, these percentages, right? Is that um, like, let's take the alignment one, you said 75%. Is that like you treat 100 patients, 75 of them will reach the desired movement or you reach 75% of the way most of the time? Or can you just make that tangible, that figure? What does it actually represent? Yeah, so that represents anterior alignment of the predicted tooth movement versus what's achieved. So that is, if we wanted to rotate a tooth, say, 45 degrees, we're going to get to around about 37 degrees. That's what that information is telling us if we add it all together. So the 100% mark isn't really there. Uh, and we see that in clinical practice because we tend to go to refinements to some degree or another to then get the rest of those bits done. And that sounds quite bad, really, doesn't it? It's kind of, well, if you can't do the job, then what's the, what's the point of doing it? Well, it's the same with fixed appliances, right? So if we translate it, it's nearly impossible to finish the fixed appliance case without doing some customization at the end, whether it's through wire bends or changing the bracket positions. It, it, it is how orthodontics works. And it's because not the appliance is bad, it's because of the natural variation. These things are planned through a computer and algorithm. And the reality is biology doesn't necessarily follow that. So we have to have an awareness that an orthodontic journey, although we'll plan it quite a lot at the beginning, specifically with aligners, it is still a continuous process. And we have to allow for that changes with refinement at the end and so forth. And then that's, that's there. We've got expansion. And then kind of towards the other side, we've got extrusion and intrusion movements, with extrusion being the least predictable. So again, if we were to look at some of the numbers, there was a paper by Rossini in 2015, but the idea is it's the least predictable movement at about 30%. So if you're going to plan wow. to extrude a tooth, five millimeters, we're only going to get about a millimeter and a half of that predictably. Now, these movements that I've just described to you, the tipping, the, the expansion, extrusion, intrusion, that's looking at true movements. So if you took a model and you just looked at the movement taking place in that one plane of space, but hopefully as we develop this conversation today, we'll see actually there's ways around that process and we can talk about overcorrection and other things that can then make your treatments predictable. So the way I kind of break this down is that aligners themselves will do most of the job, but the rest of the job is done in our planning. And that's what I would like to get across to the protrusivities is that we can get predictable results with our aligners, like we can get with our fixed appliances. But it comes down to our planning and our understanding of aligners. And that's what I'd kind of want to end that question on. Brilliant. And I think one thing to bring it home is the whole thing about the clincher. Let's go with aligns, you know, Invisalign uh, as, as a very commonly used system out there. So what I learned in my journey was that I used to look at a clincher and I, I used to think that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. But then I sort of started to realize why dentists were programming it in. Because exactly what you said in the first answer is because if you're only going to get two millimeters of the five millimeters extrusion, you over exaggerate it on the clincher to be able to get a little bit closer to where you expect it to be. Is that a good way of, I guess, setting up the clincher to, to sort of with the knowledge of which movements are predictable and which aren't. So you almost, it's like cartoon odontics, right? You're, you're just seeing the animation, but you're, you're playing it to your advantage. Is that a good way to, to summarize it? Absolutely, it is. Like the clincheck is not a visual outcome objective. 
yeah, a clincheck is a representation of which teeth you're going to push with the aligner. And there's some pushing movements with aligners that are great, like alignment, as we described, some that aren't so great. So we have to push a little bit harder. And extrusion and intrusion movements are those classic movements. So at the end of it, and I, when I do show patients my online setups, whether it's clincheck or the system, is that I will usually stop it before the last couple of aligners, because by the time you get to the end, it doesn't look right. But actually, that's what I need to deliver that prediction of aligning those teeth and correcting the malocclusion. So you're absolutely right. It's about interpretation. And, and I'm working with some author, really clever bods, and we're trying to create um, an envelope of aligners so we can hopefully publish this information where you can see well, what movements are predictable to do with aligners. So you know what, what, what will work usually uh, and then what to do if, it's, if it goes beyond that envelope. Uh, and then you start to use auxiliaries like elastics and so on uh, to then make that process more predictable. And you know, aligners, the, the general perception amongst the orthodontic community, and it is changing, was that it's not proper orthodontics. Um, and that process is starting to change now with the use of auxiliaries and getting predictable outcomes to treatment. So we are going through this kind of change from the old God where we are starting to look at aligners as proper braces. But when we engage with that concept, it's about predictability, because that's the fundamentals of orthodontics. On that point, one of the movements I shy away from, or one of the cases I shy away from with aligners is deep bites. So I want to ask you, Farouk, yeah. am I right to be concerned with deep bite patients? Uh, or has something changed in the generations such that deep bites are becoming more predictable to treat with aligners? Um, where, what's your stance? Because classically, I know that aligners are favorable for anterior open bites, for the molar intrusion and correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're the expert here. Um, tell me about deep bites and my concerns, correct? I, I shall do. There's two things I've got to mention here, guys. So one is that Jazz has done diploma in orthodontics, right? So Jazz is well equipped with some of this information. So he, he will correct me if I'm wrong. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We've worked so hard on this Protrusive team, and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. Two, the thing that the hard thing about podcasts, guys, is making a link between the first question and the second question. <laughs> and Jazz has got a quirk. So Jazz will use the word brilliant quite a lot in his podcast. <laughs> and I, don't get me wrong, I'm awful at doing this. Like, I am really bad at linking one question to another question. But it's good to hear Jazz. I mean, he does it so much better than I do. it. Um, so it's great to hear it for me. So, yeah, I mean, the, the intrusion cases, coming back to the question, is that, and I know Jazz is most likely to cut out my bits that I've put in here and just stick to, like, a 10-minute podcast of content, um, is that you're right. So <laughs> intrusion, intr deep bite cases are a challenge. Um, and again, like, my my approach to, to to orthodontics and to be honest with dentistry is that I need to fundamentally understand what's going on. Right? I can learn, you know, about having my crown prep so it is parallel sided or, or six degree tape or whatever it might be, but I need to understand why before I can almost believe it. So let's just go back a stage. Deep bite cases with aligners. The challenge with them is the comparison to fixed braces. So naturally in a liner, it has an intrusive effect. It's going to push all the teeth downwards. And if you take into account the back teeth are going to be intruded as well, a bit if we talk about the third, the kind of the, the class three lever, like a, a stapler, for example, right? If we're going to intrude all the way across, then actually we're going to get an increase in the bite at the front. So that's the nature of an aligner. Now that is the opposite for fixed appliances, where their nature is to extrude teeth. So they are actually much better and perhaps more naturally equipped, is a better phrase to use, for deep bite cases. So with aligners, they don't have the natural tendency to it. However, we can correct for that. So there was a recent study by Al-Baha, Al and he showed that around about 50% of deep bite cases deliver the intrusion. Okay, doesn't sound great. 
But actually, there's a way around this process, and it's about having overcorrection, as we spoke about kind of in the last in the last question. So, when it comes to deep bite cases, I'll aim to finish with an anterior open bite. So, on the clean check mm. or on the online setup, it doesn't look great. But actually, I've now overcorrected for that, knowing that the line is not very good at delivering that force all the way. And at that stage, the patients do have a correction to their deep bite. But let's be clear: if a patient's got a complete bite and there's no low incisor show at all whether you're doing with aligners or even fixed appliances, it's going to be a struggle to correct in the adult patient. So it does come down for the average patient, we can do it and it's fine. But actually for the extremes in any dimension, whether it's vertical or horizontal and large overjets, actually appliances have their limitations to the orthodontic envelope of tooth movement. So we've got to bear that in mind. I think it is possible to do, uh, but it requires some some planning to overcorrect. Now you mentioned about different generations, and I think that's really interesting because Invisalign have got the, the G5, they recently introduced the G8, and these are just the generations of Invisalign and new, new features to their product. From the back, you can see that if Invisalign have tried two different types of features to correct this, it's a difficult one to do. And I think we have to understand that. Uh, and one of the key things that they've changed is trying to work with anchorage. So I, I want to try and make this straightforward. When we're trying to push the low incisors down, there's a natural tendency for the aligner to push up at the back. And that's how the process of intrusion works. One of the problems with aligners is that they don't retain that well. So if the line is being pushed down at the front, it's going to get pushed up at the back. The liner simply lifts off and doesn't pull on the teeth or push on them. So the way that aligners are now getting around that is by using large horizontal attachments on the back teeth, right? So it's stopping the aligner lifting up at the back and it helps to deliver that force in the anterior region to intrude the low incisors. So as we know, the nature isn't great for it. We are finding ways to work around it. And those are the two key ways to get a predictable deep bite case. That was so elegantly put, Farouk. Honestly, that was I'm so I'm waiting elegant. for the brilliant. I'm, I'm waiting for it. <laughs> I had to change it now, didn't I? I had to make it elegant now. And it was. <laughs> it was more than brilliant. It was very elegantly put. And I think the real pearl you shared there is those early in their career playing with Invisalign, the ClinCheck, I think the take-home point is, which I learned a few years ago and I wish I'd learned earlier in my journey with liners, is don't be afraid to get to the end of the ClinCheck and it look weird or it look like whoa you've gone completely in the other direction because that's the whole point of overcorrection and we need to be building building that in so uh, none more so than in a deep bite case so a great gem you shared there was be prepared to overcorrect but also manage expectations and also just realize that not just like you said that case where you got 100% overbite you know that's not going to be a case that you should be doing uh, or will be even easy with fixed appliances, let alone aligners. And I think you covered that really well. Uh, so if you move on from the intrusion, extrusion and deep bite case to expansion uh, as a next point, um, you mentioned already that I think you mentioned 80% to 45%, depending on the literature in terms of um, how much expansion yeah. is expressed. Expansion is a tricky one because when I've seen people's clin checks, I get really concerned when I see overcorrection and expansion. A, stability comes to mind about afterwards. B, uh, about recession, because I've done it before and I've got a little bit of recession. So it's never nice to see recession, I guess. Um, a guide that I use is to do not expand beyond the second molars. But where does that fit into the whole overcorrection and expansion? Uh, and what guides or helpful tips can you give dentists who are looking to expand? Yeah, so I mean, this, this is a topic which if I was to translate it into dentistry, uh, I would say that this is a topic like veneers, right? So we have some areas where we're going to use veneers where it's very clear cut, right? We've got a hyperplastic upper incisor. Uh, you know, we, we, we all appreciate that veneers are going to be the best one for that one, but health-wise, stability-wise. But actually then there's a large area where it's really quite gray, where there's questions about aesthetics, questions about loss of dental substances, questions about, well, is that the right thing to do for the patient long-term-wise? And people will sit on different sides of the fence. So for me, expansion fits into that, that topic. The answer to your question is that we can expand uh, and aligners can deliver a degree of expansion. I want to try and get to that literature because a bit nerdy, as you understand, uh, from my general appearance and demeanor. But to make it useful <laughs> is that that number of 80% is to do with the intercanine distance. So it's essentially anterior expansion, right? And the further back we go, that's when it drops down to about the 45% mark around the first molars. So we've got this kind of weird kind of, if you do parallel expansion on the aligner across the arch, you're, only, you're going to get most of it in the anterior and far less posterior. John Morton, he's, the, he's one of the clinical... Uh, 
I think he's a second in charge of the clinical development with Invisalign, with Align Technology. And he was recently giving a lecture and I, and I do follow him. I do troll him a little bit as well. And he said that we don't, we can't, we know we can't achieve expansion of the second molars. All we do with aligners is we derotate them. So from the top, this information is clear that posterior expansion is not that predictable, but actually anterior expansion is one which can be delivered reasonably well. Now, if we go back to that analogy I gave of the of the veneer for the anterior tooth, um, is that there are some cases we know we're going to get expansion and it will be stable, predictable and healthy for the patient. And the classic is a posterior crossbite. So there's a, there's a functional issue potentially there um, and we can correct that through expansion and it will retain itself. It won't be unstable um, and it will meet that criteria of what we want. When it comes to the other cases, so let's talk about, well, why do we do expansion with the liner cases? Really, we're trying to create space within the arch for our alignment or correction of malocclusion. It's a way to create space, which is less complex than distalizing, far less complicated than extractions. So it's kind of a neat way around that as a process. Or we may be looking to widen the patient's smile. Okay, cool. The argument uh, to support that is that, well, it's made your orthodontic alignment easier. The argument against it are several fold. So the biggest one, as you've already mentioned, is the relapse. The question of, well, why, why, is it, why is it going to relapse? If you've moved the teeth, surely the teeth are going to retain themselves. And the argument always goes back to this, the neutral zone. So this is our prosthodontic days, right? That the teeth, we should try and position them in the neutral area between the cheek and the tongue. It's the same when it comes to dental positioning. So if you push the teeth towards the cheeks, the cheeks now have a greater force trying to push them back. And that's a continuous process which will remain until they get back to that neutral zone. So there's always that risk of that occurring. Now, when I gave you those numbers about the literature, what we know is that those numbers are working within the predictable parameters of about two to three millimeters. And there's a great paper by Weir, who was in 2017 in the Australian Journal. And it was quite a nice breakdown of two to three minutes, predictable. Three millimeters, okay, you're gonna have to work a bit harder. Four millimeters with aligners is not a predictable movement in any sense. So if we were to stick to do, if we want to do some alignment, uh, expansion in our cases when we go back on our next weekend, the idea of two millimeters, you know you're pretty comfortable delivering that. Uh, it's going to be tipping movements that aren't going to be bodily movements with it. And that's also been shown by, by a paper by Zoo uh, not too long ago. And that's exactly how fixed appliances work, by the way, guys. So again, this isn't a line that's not doing the job properly, which I feel sometimes the reputation takes them in that direction. It's this exact same with fixed appliances. If we're going to do expansion, we will tip those teeth in our adult patients. And the only way to get bony changes is to doing surgical intervention or for our younger patients, doing it before their, their sutures fuse. So it's the same. Uh, and we know from fixed appliances, again, we're delivering up to three to potentially four millimeters of expansion. Um, but then after that, we know it's not going to really take place. So we need to kind of put our orthodontic type hats of limitations on that we would do with fixed braces and apply that to aligners as well. Uh, and I would say two millimeters is not what we can deliver, um, but actually going beyond that, we shouldn't. And I know, Jazz, we've had a conversation about the Wallah line. I was just going to come to that, actually. Yeah. So the Wallah line, it's it's an interesting one. So this was kind of by the, one of the founding fathers, if I could call him, uh, Larry Andrews. Uh, and the idea that at the mucogingival junction, there's a relationship between that kind of horizontal point relative to the to the midpoint of the crown of the tooth on the labial face best observed from like an occlusal photo right is the best way to the, the way i was taught right absolutely and the idea that there's a there's a distance which is essentially safe for expansion uh, if you were to maintain that um, and if you want to increase the expansion, if, as long as you stay within those limits, it should be relatively sound. And I think that's a great starting point to get used to visually assessing cases using the Wallah line. And the idea with a line is I feel it's got an advantage over fixed appliances because the basis of this line is that you have a custom arch form. So it's not replicated the same. It's not the same U-shape. It's just getting wider. It follows the patient's initial U-shaped arch, if that's what they have. And it kind of grows in that same shape to maintain it on all the teeth. And I think it's a good reference point to use combined with knowing that two millimeters, unless you've got a functional reason, should be your predictable amount. Anything beyond that, you've got to be asking yourself, is there a more predictable way to gain the space for this particular case? Well, with that two millimeters, though, because you know that two millimeters is predictable and maybe that 
also um, aligns well with your objective and what you're hoping to achieve, then even with the expansion, would you then program in three to four millimeters expecting to see that two millimeters? To what extent do you overcorrect when it comes to expansion as well? That's a, that's a great question. And the, looking at the, the way the process of expansion works, essentially you're going to get that two millimeters delivered predictably with the aligner. So this isn't the deep bite type case where we need to start overcorrecting from the outset in our plan. It's not that realm. It's the fact that two millimeters will happen, right? And actually, when it gets to the third millimeter, it's not going to happen that well. And the fourth millimeter is going to happen less predictably. So actually, overcorrection is probably not going to do you any favors. More so, it's going to do you detriment because in your space plan, you're going to predict you're going to get more space to be able to line the teeth. And if you haven't managed to create that, which you most likely won't, actually then you're not going to be able to align your teeth fully anteriorly. So actually it's really a good idea to actually say no more expansion than two millimeters. And I'm a great one for actually with my aligners now is, is in the preset features is switching off expansion as a method of correcting the occlusion. See what the setup comes back with and then add a small amount to it of two millimeters when it comes back rather than always working it the other way around. Because I feel as though we get lured into this false sense that actually I've expanded, I've not needed to do much IPR, really, really simple but actually we've gone down a relatively unpredictable road at that stage. So that's kind of my tip at the moment is to try and remove expansion from the cases, see what it looks like, and then add some, some into it afterwards. If anyone was multitasking, well, Farouk just said that, you need to rewind 60 seconds <laughs> and listen to that again. That was a, a real, real gem right there. I think that's really, really cool. I think that's going to help a lot of people. And I just wanted to ask one more question on the realms of expansion because there's three or four more um, areas I want to hit. But before I actually even get to, uh, to this next one is I want to say that you are officially the geekiest guest to ever come on Patricia's <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Yes. You've officially over overtaken Nick Sethi in the number of references you've actually said, and we're, we're, we're just about you know halfway or something like that. So the, the, the references are flowing in nicely. So you are officially the geekiest uh, guest, which is amazing, Farouk. I expected no less from the, the host of uh, Orthodontics and Summary. And guys, you should check that one out. Uh, what's the website, uh, Farouk, for, for, the, for, the, for the podcast? www.orthoinsummary.com. Uh, and you guys will go there. And actually, the most popular podcast topic that I have is aligners. It fits into this. We've got 19 of them. Um, and I've kind of wow. gone across the spectrum with it. So I've tried to go to, I've looked at Invisalign, of course, produce a lot of content. And I think the education content is good, guys. I'm not trying to dismiss them. Um, but I've gone to some independent aligner authorities and we've listened to them speak and we've captured their key points. And they're only five minutes long. So I think you can gain, hopefully, a, a rounded understanding. Uh, and a lot of it I've expressed to you guys today uh, about how aligners work. And you know what? The reality is, Jazz, is that we're still at the learning stages of this science. Uh, and I don't think we should be ashamed of that. Uh, and I think some orthodontists, because it's not it, we don't have the evidence we've got for, for the fix. Um, but we are still growing and developing. And I think, actually, I feel the GDPs have very much helped that process to accelerate. Like, and I'll be honest with you, Jess, like I qualify as a specialist. I just sat my M-Orth exam, which is the bar exam for, for orthodontics in the UK. Um, and my first, in my first aligner case, I contacted my cousin, who's a general dentist, and said, look, man, I've got this clean check. What? what is what is happening on this cartoon so uh, i don't think it I, I don't think it's restricted to a a speciality or what have you i think we can all understand things together uh, and some of my general dental practitioner colleagues ask fundamentally phenomenal questions which do question how the science works and we then have a i feel a responsibility at least in my setting as an educator to then find that information out and share it like we're doing today that's a really wonderful perspective. Now, I'm going to come on to that uh, final question on expansion I was going to ask, which is I come or just to critique my practice, which is that I commonly do like to lock and make the second and third molars unmovable because I feel, you know, that you can't predictably expand it and also to impart a degree of anchorage. Uh, is that something that you do? Is that a, a good protocol to follow? I think it's a great idea to have in place. Now, um, it, it comes down to, and again, I always like to draw analogies to dentistry, is that if we looked at the free end saddle situation, right? So we're going to make ourselves a partial denture. We've got a free end saddle. We know that actually the compression of the tissues is quite difficult to get retention because it's better posterior and we don't have that in the free end saddle situation. So it's the same when it comes to aligners. We just don't have enough to be able to move those back teeth predictably. So therefore, not moving those is a very good way of stopping unwanted tooth movements and having less predictability. 
So, for example, if you pro if we were to program in a rotation to a second permanent molar of 15 degrees, okay, it doesn't sound too horrific, but as it's starting to push on that tooth, it's struggling to do it. That has implications on how well that aligner fits further forwards, and actually we may not be able to line an upper anterior uh, upper canine because the aligner is struggling to seat in that posterior quadrant. So actually, and I, and again, it's one of my uh, things that I'm going through at the moment is expansion is one, but two is that I go through the teeth and get a bit of a nerd. I look at the tooth movements of each tooth in in all six planes. I'd love it. I love it. I'm not going to lie to you. It's like what it's like reading code or reading the Matrix. Let's try and make it cool, Jazz. Let's try it. <laughs> I love it. I, love I look it. at the numbers. I, it's best when I'm doing it with my postgraduate trainees of a guy's hospital. I say, yeah, put up the tooth table. And I look at it like I'm just like I'm just the architect. Um, but actually, yeah. Anyway, uh, I will give away all my secrets. So the so the the idea of it is that I will then remove movements that I feel is well. It's automated this process. I don't need talk in my upper right seven. Like it's not not needed for this case. I wouldn't do it for fixed. I, it's an unwanted movement. I'll just remove movements from my posterior segment in all dimensions. Uh, and not let the computer dictate that, and it's going to give me more predictability where I do want it. So I think not locking the six and sevens are good. Uh, sevens and eights is good. The only time I'd probably do something different is if I've got a crossbite posteriorly, and just the sixes in crossbite, which isn't the most uncommon situation. And actually, sometimes I want to have the aligner think of having some reciprocal movements taking place, and that just gives me a bit more push on the six, which is buccally and crossbite, to allow it to align even though I know the seven and eight are unlikely to move because it's two teeth versus one tooth. Um, that's the only exception for me, but I think it's a great starting point until you're going to get start looking at more advanced movements. Excellent. So you see, I'm changing my words that I'm using now so that uh, you, don't, you don't catch me with brilliant again. Uh, but you did remind me with the mention of talk there um, that I read somewhere uh, or listen somewhere, probably listen, listened, that when you are doing expansion, that it's good practice to also check that as the molars are expanding, you're adding in some palatal root torque uh, so that it somehow uh, imparts more of a bodily movement rather than just tipping, right? No, sorry, buckle root torque. My my, my mistake. I'm, I meant buckle root torque. Yep, yep. So so that it, it comes yeah. so it comes like a bodily movement rather than uh, just just tipping like that. You want to bring the roots with it so it, it it almost makes it familiar like a bodily movement is that something that you follow yeah so i mean i i do and um it, it's it's now a feature within the g8s as well so they've introduced this i think aligner users were already implementing this as a process but it, it hinges on having a buckle attachment just having a square attachment horizontal on those buckled teeth to allow that movement that expression of force to take place in the tooth Again, it's great conceptually, and it does deliver it, but it doesn't deliver it 100%. And that's what we're finding. And it's, and to be honest, again, it's quite true with fixed appliances, is that we can deliver buccal root torque to posterior segments, but it takes a long time to actually deliver it. Uh, and how predictable it is, is always a question mark. And I think aligners are the same. If you kept a case in of aligners, in aligners, say, for an extra six to nine months at the end, just to put in this buccal root talk, I think the likelihood is you will deliver it. And again, when we look at fixed appliances, some of our cases do take a very long time. So actually, we'll add in some buccal root talk because we're going to be in treatment for another nine months. So we then see it happen. I, I think it's we're comparing the, the scenarios in two different realms. Um, and actually, if you do want to deliver expansion, you want to make it predictable. You've got to make the treatment much longer to account for that, um, to ensure that you are going through the refinements process as well to get these roots upright. Whereas I think if we're then looking at just creating expansion for the purpose of creating space within the arch, so we can do alignment, I think there are other ways to achieve that in a more predictable way. Let's do what we can predictably with expansion, okay? But let's have a look at some of the other ways so we can deliver this case perhaps in a relatively shorter time frame. Uh, not trying to cheat the system here, but let's just work with that envelope of movement with aligners. Well, speaking of timeframes, you just reminded me of another useful question for dentists is that sometimes I've started to play around with my clean check requests in terms of velocity, velocity of tooth movements. And sometimes if I find that my lower alignment is taking 26 aligners and upper is taking 16, then I will sometimes say, well, why don't you slow the upper ones down? Uh, so that, it, that they're both taking uh, an, a more equal amount of time overall in terms of how many aligners are going to be active. Um, what, what's your take on that? A, and B, do you ever make this request of either speeding up the velocity to the max or slowing it down? And when 
And when not, is that a good idea to do? So I think this is uh, such a great point. And again, guys, I'm going to be humbled here and say that uh, I picked up this tip from a general dental practitioner colleague. And we were looking at a case together and I was trying to show off. And he said, well, you know, why don't you just increase the number of aligners in the upper arch to match the lower? And it's, it's something that I'll do all the time now. The idea of slowing down tooth movement is about increasing predictability with that movement. Uh, we have compliance potential issues that are there. We've got some teeth that may well be stubborn for whatever reason. And actually, the slower we do anything when it comes to orthodontics, the more predictable it is. And again, guys, I'm going to relate this back to the fixed appliances. It's exactly the same. We know if we go through a slower uh, space uh, changing our wires and slower amount of space closure taking place, if we're taking teeth out, it's far more predictable, less side effects, more predictable position. So I absolutely do that. And I think it's a great way forward. So I think actually, if we really want to deliver every case predictably, we'd slow down the movement in every tooth. But then there's a time frame and so forth to it. Uh, and for me, that, that feature is that if we're doing the average, if I'm treating the average case, actually that's something I'll bear in mind when it comes to refinement. So if I've had an issue with several teeth not moving particularly well, in my refinement I will say, can you actually give me twice the aligners for this particular case? Um, now there's a case that I'm treating recently, which is a an older lady. She's in her late 60s, uh, and we've had some periodontal issues historically. She's just finished with a periodontist, and she's come to see me. We need to do quite a lot of work. She's had a tooth taken out. We're going to move all the teeth into that space, and we're going to use the aligners to deliver it. And we have now gone from having only 18 aligners. I, I couldn't see how that would happen in that time frame. We've now doubled that up to 36. And now it's looking like something which will work more predictably. Take into account the fact that she's had history of perio. I want to keep the forces really light. Uh, and also the amount of tooth movement she needs, I, I, it looks like a lot to me on the, on the clinch check. Now in both respects, we're now making that into a safe one. And like a colleague of mine from, from Kuwait, he got caught out with a perio case where he he didn't change the velocity of it. And actually the, 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 the case then developed in such a way that there was mobility at the end. And it was a real worry in a state for a period of time. We just not respected the biological boundaries. Um, in some respects, fixed appliances may have an advantage because there are really light wires that we generally start off with, which usually deliver really low force and we increase the force as we go along. With aligners, it's like a one set force. It's kind of going to do that for each type of movement. Um, so we're perhaps a little bit more likely, so we've got to be more tuned into that. But yeah, I think if you, when in doubt, try and increase the aligners. And I know some of my colleagues will, will try and reduce the aligners, trying to get into certain price brackets and packages. And guys, I mean, that works out great from the financial perspective, right? Um, but on the other side of it, guys, is that that's when you then start referring your cases on to somebody else to then finish off. So it, it's it's one of those. And, and, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way perspective to general dental practitioners, please, Jazz, that's not what I'm saying. I've had a consultant colleague do the same thing to reduce the number of aligners, price point, actually gets to the end, the teeth aren't straight. So I think we have that that onus of duty to deliver the case. And then, you know, the rest of it will, will follow and you'll get a bigger discount by having more patients. How about that? Well said. And it'd be amazing to see the stats from the Misline in terms of how many aligners are needed for each patient. I'm sure when it gets to seven and 14, there's a big spike. Like it just happens that this malocclusion needs 14 aligners. And, you know, it just, I'm sure there's a huge spike because dentists, <laughs> yes, we're, we're trying to make it financially feasible and all that kind of yes. stuff as well. Well, I think you've covered all the main questions really well. The, the rest are almost like accessory questions in the whole theme of do's and don'ts. So recently I had Robin Bethel on the podcast uh, as part of Straight Pro, uh, and we talked about about the long and short of elastics and he completely surprised me I think you know we were talking about this he rarely or seldom uses elastics like class 2 and class 3 elastics uh, and I think the paper he quoted did mention about the whole skeletal changes not being possible which we kind of know already and me and you were having a chat afterwards uh, on Facebook and I feel as though you have some good thoughts and some input to add in this debate because Maybe for dental alveolar reasons, and in certain cases, elastics may have a role. Now, we, he did say that for extruding laterals, most common time, the bootstrap technique. So go back to the episode if you haven't listened already. So that's that's a given. But tell us about intermaxillary elastics. When do you use them, Farouk? This is a, this is a great topic and one that I'm still uh, learning more and more about. Um, now, elastics, guys, I think, again, I've got to take a step back and say, well, what are, why, why are we using elastics? And I, they have multiple uses. 
Um, it's a bit like a flat plastic. Like you can use it for so many procedures. I don't think any of us would say actually it's just used for one procedure. So elastics in the broader sense are used to help control tooth movement. So that's the premise. It's going to help us deliver a movement more predictably. So we can use it to stop unwanted tooth movements. So say we want to prevent teeth proclining, for example. We can use it to create active movements. So we can have an increased overjet. We can use it to reduce the overjet. And as you mentioned, individual tooth movements through things like bootstrapping, where you take one tooth, elastic goes over it and extrudes one tooth into the aligner. So there are there are those kind of three components to it. Now, I think we have, and it has been mentioned by Robin's uh, podcast you did with him, and I was listening to it, is that, yeah, skeletal movements aren't possible with them. And when they are shown, there is no strong science to support it. It's usually isolated cases and social media cases where, where we have questions about it. So for me, intermixillary elastic. So what are we describing here? So the class two elastics, essentially they're pulling from the front of the upper teeth to the bottom back teeth. And that's where the direction of force is taking place. We're pulling the top teeth back, we're pulling the bottom teeth forwards. And this is where we're going to start now talking about, well, what's the purpose of it? Are we doing it to stop unwanted movements? Or we're going to use the word anchorage. And I appreciate that terminology goes into a bit of orthodontic wizardry. And I don't wish to use a smoke and mirrors, but essentially unwanted movements. <laughs> Um, say we want to align we want to align our upper incisors and we don't want to procline, so we'll use some class two elastics to stop that unwanted tooth movement. And then we'll talk about correcting an overjet. So we're going to use heavier elastics to do use an active force to bring back the upper incisors, maybe procline the low incisors if we feel it's appropriate. So those are kind of how, how it works. And the way then you make the difference between am I doing it for anchorage or to stop unwanted movements? versus active movements is the amount of force and how long the force is there for. So the most common type of elastic to use, and again, I'm going to go into some numbers here, uh, is a medium force, which is three and a half ounces, and usually a quarter of an inch. Now, now that information kind of is relatively in the background, but the idea is that's the most common used elastic in, in orthodontics. I've got a reference, Mansoor, 2017. <laughs> hit that. Um, and, uh, and essentially, it just showed that, that can be, it's a very versatile elastic can be used in most situations for class two and class three but the idea is that i'll get patients to wear it just at night time if i want to stop the, the unwanted movement if i want to get active movement i'll get them to wear it more often now we've spoken about it not being skeletal so these are dental alveolar changes and again just translating the orthodontic kind of terminology we're just going to retrocline the upper incisors and procline the low incisors so if a case warrants that and can have those changes class two elastics are fantastic at achieving it um, i found myself more and more using elastics with my liner cases from the anchorage perspective so to control which way the teeth are going to straighten, essentially. Are they going to straighten by coming forwards? Can I stop them from coming forwards by using the elastics? And again, it's just a nighttime usage, the same elastic. And it's just helping me to control, well, I want the teeth to straighten. How is it now going to happen? And I feel so that's a lot of what orthodontics is. The mechanics themselves will do the job. But then we kind of tweak it here, tweak it there to move it left, to move it right, and so on and so forth. So that's my take on elastics. I think they're, they're great tools. There's a guy who I covered in one of my podcasts, uh, Kelva, who's a professor in, in Brazil, and he uh, just uses elastics all the time. And his cases are phenomenal, but he still respects the biological boundaries. And where it's not, where proclination to the low incisors is a bad thing, they've got recession, then he won't use them. So they aren't the tool that solves all problems, uh, and by no means are they a tool to work, uh, to, to stay away from. I feel as though actually having a go with them is a great idea. And, and next time you guys are treating an aligner case, and you feel as though actually these up incisors may procline, and I don't want that to happen, I would say build in some class two elastics. Get the precision cuts on the upper canines top tip, Precision cuts upper canines, cut out for the lower sixes, and then just put some buttons on them, or so you can buy the, the ones from OrthoCare. There's loads of buttons you can buy, metal or, or, or clear, uh, and get the patients to wear them evening and nighttime. Patients are really cool with them, especially when you're evening and nighttime. They're, they're really up for it. They like the idea of using something at nighttime to help the case progress and get a better predictable result, uh, and they commit to them quite nicely. You got If you haven't had the Typodont, I think Invisalign are great at it because they actually have the cutouts on their Typodont. So again, guys, if you have got that from a line, and I think most people get that when they go on the course, is that you'll see the cutouts, get some elastics, just have a play. Have a play of putting them on. 
Uh, and I do think it's something to try and incorporate into your regular practice. One of the advantages I think Clearliners has compared to fixed appliances that when I've done fixed appliances, I was trained in fixed appliances and the whole thing that, for example, you place a wire and it, it expresses a force and then if that force gets expressed for too long, perhaps you lose control uh, of, of the case or you get too much of a movement that you perhaps didn't want. Whereas with aligners, it can't go beyond the realms of the aligner itself. So this whole concept of preventing too much proclination, I, I almost don't understand it with aligners because surely the tooth cannot procline beyond the actual position of the aligner itself. So really, how is elastics helping in that case? Do you see what I mean? I, I hear what you're saying. And you're right, it is an advantage of aligners. They're a closed system. Essentially, nothing can move without everything moving. That, that's how the premise of it works. Whereas fixed appliances, each tooth has an individual force, as you very correctly described, and you can get unwanted tooth movements. Uh, so fixed appliances is a bit like spinning a plate. You kind of have to keep it spinning. You have to keep engaged with it. And if you don't, then things are going to start to fall off. Whereas aligners, they will stop at that certain stage and not fall. So th th there is that advantage when it comes to the planning stage. But coming to answer your question as to, well, why would that happen if it's a closed system? Is that unfortunately the prediction of uh, aligners from the software isn't 100% accurate. So when they're talking about aligning the upper anterior teeth, is that you may think they're going to align posteriorly. But actually, if you've not created enough space to do that, or if the software hasn't managed to do that, what's actually going to happen is that the teeth are going to straighten, but the up and side is going to procline. They'll still stay within that same system, but actually things have moved spatially forwards in the patient's face. And, and that's part of the challenges when we try to interpret our online setups, is that although they put the arches together, these forces are acting independently on these uh, up and lower arches. And actually, you can move a whole arch forwards uh, and not be aware of that then taking place in your plan. So the idea of having the, the, the class two elastics, and I'll probably, I'll probably typify it and say we've got a, a slightly increased overjet, right? We've got a five millimeter overjet and mild crowding upper and lower. This is a classic case for me. I'm going to align the upper teeth and lower teeth. I'm going to do some IPR. And actually, if I weren't to, and, and I'll use some nighttime class two elastics. Now, that will hopefully maintain a five millimeter overjet, may improve it ever so slightly, but it's not going to make it worse. Now, if I didn't use class two elastics, the chances are the overjet will increase by about a millimeter, um, as is the nature of teeth as they start to procline. Those will procline, upper teeth are bigger as they procline, it will make a bigger overjet. So the idea of having that elastic in place is the insurance policy to not deliver an, uh, that detrimental effect. And as I say, the closed system is great as a concept, but it doesn't mean it's all anchored at the back. All the teeth are experiencing a force and it can push things forwards as a result. Thank you, Farouk, for uh, clarifying that confusion. I think you answered that really comprehensively. That's brilliant. Uh, Farouk on IPR, do's and don'ts of IPR. Please tell us. <laughs> so, guys, uh, IPR is such a topic where I feel as though it deserves a session in itself. This is me, by, by the way, well, guys. Devaki, Dr. Devaki, orthodontist, she came on uh, actually to talk about a whole episode on IPR actually recently, which which was awesome. Uh, that was some episodes ago now, probably lockdown one, uh, and she covered it wonderfully. I've got lots of messages okay. from GDP saying, wow, what they, they really needed that. I think I called the episode IPR for dummies. So we covered that, but I want, I want the Farouk special. I want your masala on IPR because everyone's got their sort of um, way of doing it and their philosophy. <laughs> Yeah, so um, the one message I would give about IPR is that you have to be perpendicular to the surface that you want to cut. So you've got to be 90 degrees to the surface that you want to reduce. Now, that then translating it into how does that clinically practice, if you have a rotated tooth, for example, a lower central in size, it's 45 degrees rotated for argument's sake, is that I will go in typically with a hand strip because a hand strip is flexible, I can con contour it, single surface cutting to make sure it's perpendicular to that interproximal contact point, right? Now, with IPR, with when it comes to hand strips, we can deliver 0.1 millimeter pretty predictably with, with uh, the different thickness. Uh, and if you double it up, then you get 0.2 millimeters. So that's kind of my, my thought process when it's quite a, a malaligned tooth. Then we've got the discs and the reciprocating strips and the burrs. Now I do use all of them. They're all that kind of there in my armamentarium, but they don't get used as often. So if I wanted to use a disc or reciprocating uh, strip, actually it's quite difficult to get 
45 degree angle uh, rotated incisor and to get that instrument in because it's a stiff instrument actually when we put it into proximally it's going to go 90 degrees to the adjacent teeth not to that rotated tooth and that means when i'm using it i'm going to go and i'm not power perpendicular to that surface i want to reduce it's always going to make an oblique cut which means i take some interproximally i'm going to take some labially as well and that is the issue with using these heavier instruments for ipr um, I will then wait until the teeth are aligned, and then I'll go in with my heavy IPR. Now, again, I've tried to make my life a bit simpler because it's simple because you know who wants to have a complicated life. So I generally tend not to do beyond 0.3 millimeters of IPR in the labial segment. I'll do 0.4 in the posterior segment, and I won't go any further back than the six-five contact point. So for me, those are my limitations. One, because I want an easy life. Uh, two, because actually now I can do most of the IPR with hand strips. And if I'm going to do 0.4 millimeters in a lower right three quadrant, for example, I will then ask the aligner company to stage it. So I want 0.2 from the beginning. The next visit, I'll do the other 0.2, and I can easily deliver that. Now, there are some more complex cases where I've needed to do 0.5 millimeters. They're really quite involved distalization cases and so on and so forth. And that's when I take out the burr. Uh, and the burr for me is that is the get out of jail for the complex case. But I don't use it for my average case because I don't feel as though I need to. Like we're delivering it predictably and managing it. I would say the next thing to take home from the perpendicular positioning of your I IPR strip or disc, whatever you're using, is then to use an IPR gauge. Because no matter how good you think you are eyeballing it and how predictable you think your instrument is at being a measuring tool, it's not going to be as accurate as using an IPR gauge and then make a record of what you've done. And my third tip would be is if you do stage your IPR, um, you're getting everything from me. This is like, this is like this, I was going to do this as a course now, and I can't do it because I've given it all to you, Jazz. So the, the third one is to... I'm very grateful. <laughs> uh, I'm just waiting for Jazz to do all the admin, to be honest. Uh, so, the, so the third one is to measure the contact point if you've staged it before you do the IPR, because you may already have some space there. So you need to be predictable to what you're delivering. Now, when I've worked with some of the companies and I've done some teaching for different companies, is that the biggest bugbear the laboratories have is uh, practitioners under doing the IPR. They've just not done enough. They've essentially taken a hand strip, they've run through the contact points, and they've kind of given, given, given it a day and said, I've done IPR. It's not the case. It does take a while to deliver 0.1 millimeters IPR. You've got to go in the light strip, you've got to go in the heavy strip, you've got to check it. Sometimes you have to double up to make sure it's there. So, so be honest with yourself that you're doing it. And I can't stress enough how important it is to be perpendicular to that surface because you may do the right amount, but you've done it on the wrong surface. So even when the tooth straightens, you haven't aligned it because the space isn't where the company has planned it to be. So on those accounts, those are my, my top tips, making sure you're perpendicular. If you can't do it, use a strip. You will be able to do it. Making sure that you're using a gauge when it comes to it. Uh, and when you're staging your IPR, if you're doing a lot of it, then make sure you're measuring it before you do that the second time. And for me, that is something which has worked really well. The interesting thing that happened when we released that episode with the Devaki on IPR was that a lot of dentists messaged me saying, thank you, Jazz, for making something simple and easy to understand because, and this is what they say, they said, because I thought when they were asking for 0 0.5, like, and, and you got like a, a rotated tooth, they were actually a lot of time. So what people told me is they're making 0 0.5 at that place. Whereas actually you want 0 0.5 from the contact point area, which sounds very simple and obviously it sounds very yeah. obvious, but when you've got rotated teeth, people are taking off, you know, a bit of labial as well. And just because they've, they've achieved that 0 yeah. 0.5 space, it's not in the right area. We had actually planned kind of conceptually to deliver an IPR um, hands-on day. Kind of, this is unfortunately just peri-lockdown, so it would never really materialise any further than the concept. But it's something which I feel really strongly about. I, I think it's something, and again, guys, I'm not going to say it's because uh, of all the bells and whistles and the titles. It's, to be honest, a lot of it's from my own experience. I have made a mess of IPR so many times with all instruments that I've described, even hand files, where I've taken off the wrong surface because I was using the wrong side of it, as simple as that. Uh, and all these things have kind of made me quite humble in the process of delivering IPR and to be frank with patients and with myself if I haven't done the right amount I'll do it the next time uh, and I think all of those things are how you deliver predictable results and for me aligners are about respecting the the boundaries of the biological limits and also the delivering the correct amount of forces to the teeth and creating the space the right way so I think if we get those two together we are all really producing predictable results with aligners. 
Farouk, we're coming up to that magic hour point, uh, and I just want to say, wow, you've added so much value. I think a lot of people are going to go away feeling a lot more confident, feeling like they're going to make better choices when it comes to their clin checks and, and case uh, suitability. So I think you've got given so much value and so many references that... Who knows how many people will to keep up, but if you guys want more, please do <laughs> check out Farouk's uh, author and summary podcast. If you like his style, which you should, because he's such a, I love those analogies. You know, you gave so many good tangible analogies, which I, I love. So thank you for sharing those. But I just want you to finish on one thing, which we did discuss beforehand, which is where do you think the role of GDPs is in terms of orthodontics? Where is the limit? How do you feel about us dabbling? How do you feel about us doing comprehensive cases? Okay, so I mean, this is a question where I've had different opinions of times gone on. Uh, and to give you the long and short of it, um, I started off saying it has to be, no, it has to be theoretical knowledge based. Uh, and then saying, no, it has to be experience based. You have to do a certain number of cases. And, and now I've settled on if you know how aligners work, then you should do it. And that, for me, branches so many different equations that can take place, and it still comes back to the same answer. Like, there's a friend of mine, Mandeep Gossel, who, who's got his, who's a specialist orthodontist, uh, and he's got his own course uh, on diploma. So he, he's he's a great guy, uh, and he posted on Facebook recently about how diamond providers. I won't use the explicitive, but essentially they, there's no guarantee that they're giving any reasonable quality because a penny drops at different stages for different people. You can make the same mistake a hundred times. You can make the mistake once and learn from it. So I think it's incumbent upon us to learn about how they work, be honest with ourselves. And I can't say that enough for somebody who has made mistakes and has to come to terms with having to ask for help for cases um, and then not allow those unknown unknowns to exist. And that's my stress. And I, I was really fortunate to be involved with uh, CFAST and delivering some of their teaching with the liners. And what I loved about those guys is that they said at the end of the course, this is the beginning of your journey in aligners. Next, go on this other company's aligner course. Go on this company's aligner course. Make sure from this course, once you're certified to use our appliance and blah, 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 you now go and learn some more information about it. So you don't have these unknown unknowns. And I think that's a really powerful company who encourage you to use other products, especially educational ones. Uh, so you're not tied into them, one. You may not be loyal to them, too. But three is that they know for you to do that job predictably, you need to know about it. So I would suggest for people to go and learn more about the process. When it comes to what can what can GDPs do, I don't think there should be limits imposed on that. We, we are honest as orthodontists, as practitioners, as to what we understand, and we should stick to that as our process. But having listened to conversations like ours today, for example, hopefully some people have gone away with some pearls from it, but listen to other people's conversations sure. as well. Like I really like Robin's talk. I, we, we may have had a different opinion when it came to, to use of elastics, but I mean, it was really cool to see how what he thought and how bootstrapping was working for him. Um, and having these conversations is how, how we will grow. And again, we may be talking about experts and so on, but we are a community of people. Uh, and, and as we grow, we will grow as a field as well so the more we know the more questions we'll ask the more answers we'll find and we'll all get better at doing our jobs and i do feel as though we are summations of the people around us so i hope we can share this information and general dental practitioner colleagues can carry out orthodontic treatment within their within their uh, sphere of understanding and i try to keep it to that i don't think there should be limitations on products i don't think there should be limitations on tooth movements um, and, and like when I was applying for orthodontics as a general practitioner colleague, Nadim Yunus, who's involved with the BARD, uh, the Aesthetic Academy, does a lot of composite courses and so on. He's not a specialist. He was my mentor when I was going through training applications for training for orthodontics. He delivers his own orthodontic contract. Like these, There are people out there who are very good, may not have the bells and whistles associated with their name, but they're definitely people I would have my family members treated by. So I don't think it should be restricted. But what I would say is that the, the, the discrepancy I feel between specialists and and, uh, and general practitioners who are carrying out this treatment is comes down to the online setup and the clean check if we want to talk about Invisalign is that I feel as though the, the orthodontist is is more kind of in tune to question to, to know what movements are biologically uh, predictable uh, and which ones aren't 
And I think that's where I do hold the companies to account at the automation process. I really feel, and we're doing it now with the, with the trainees, is that we give them just an online setup with the teeth not straight and say, right, guys, you straighten the teeth using this using this software. So they know what, they know what movements they've put into the process. They've looked at each individual tooth movement and they've put it in themselves. So, and then I'll say, well, is that predictable? Is it not predictable? Is it biologically sound, blah, blah, blah. Uh, whereas the companies through automating it have negated that process of understanding about which tooth movements are taking place. So that I feel as though is an educational issue, uh, a convenience issue from a corporation perspective. But actually I think the dentists have lost out in that process. Uh, whereas orthodontists have got that from their other training. The most eye-opening moment for me, Farouk, was when I went to, uh, I'm not going to mention any names or anything, I went to a lab uh, and they were doing these orthodontic setups for clear aligners uh, and I just sat and I observed what these um, technicians were doing, right? Uh, and they just highlighted the, the you know circles around each individual tooth, so digitally the tooth is cut out and they just made them look pretty. And that was it. There was, you know, these guys aren't dentists. They're just putting them roughly where they think they should go. And then they send the dentist to approve. Uh, so I completely echo everything you said in terms of uh, understanding what is uh, possible, what is predictable, um, taking into account biology as well. And I really look forward to your envelope of aligners. You know, you could be the next prophet. Um, so if, when you when you do uh, get that out, please do share it with us all. We'd love to have that. Uh, and uh, do join the Petrucci's Dental Community, Farouk. You know, it'd be great to have you on there as well uh, as our sort of aligner expert or one of our aligner experts now. Uh, and I think you've really wrapped up very nicely with so much humility, so much geekiness uh, and so many knowledge bombs. Uh, Farouk, thank you so much for all your input today. It was absolutely absolutely brilliant and thank you for embarrassing me as well <laughs> jazz it's an absolute pleasure to be here really i've been waiting for the call up it's taken far longer than i've been messaging you for but either way i appreciate it my friend it's been an absolute honor and i uh, and again guys i just want to say i am really indebted to jazz he really helped me direct me as to how to set up my own stuff when it came to orthodontics and i do see him as really as as somebody to aspire to when it comes to positivity when it comes to education uh, and really i think you're leading the way jazz so i look forward to seeing what you're going to do next I appreciate you so much, man. Thanks so much for coming on today. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. I think Farouk is such a, a humble specialist. I mean, I love people like him who, you know, he's practicing at a really high level. Like he's a consultant. He does so much for the profession and education. He's so down to earth and he's so with it, with the GDPs. So Farouk, man, keep doing what you're doing. We love it. Thank you so much for uh, helping us GDPs and also helping the profession of orthodontics. I think you're really, uh, you're, you're advancing orthodontics, man. You're spreading knowledge. You're helping everyone out. So I respect that massively. So from the next episode, we're no longer in straight pro mode. And the next episode I have for you is productivity with the prosthodontist with my good friend Ricky Bhopal. I hope you enjoy it and I'll catch you then.